It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. This is Bishop Brian Willette coming to you live from the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains on the September 8th, 2016, the Feast of the Nativity of the Blessed Virgin. It's been a while since I've had the opportunity to talk with all of you, and I know my audience has been wanting a, a new episode, so uh, this week uh, permitted the time to do just that, and since we had some questions uh, over the past couple months uh, that uh, some of the audience members have asked, I thought it would be a good idea to start this series on answering your questions. So when I receive emails or messages on social media with uh, your theological questions and conundrums, I will uh, answer them here on this series. We have two new ones today, and so we will attempt to answer them and see where it takes us. Stay tuned.
Well, welcome to another edition of Vestiges of Christianity. Once again, I'm Bishop Brian Willett. And uh, it's been a while. Um, been very, very, very busy. Uh, and with a, a small grassroots church like this one, um, you know, where we are horribly underfunded and horribly understaffed, uh, certain uh, things uh, need to be prioritized. And right now, the outreach ministry, uh, where we serve as clients who are experiencing what they believe to be potential demonic attachments, um, that is what the Holy Nicolaitan Catholic Church uh, specializes in, uh, and it is its predominant outreach ministry. In fact, everything that it does really revolves around that particular outreach ministry. Um, and so uh, we've been getting a lot of cases coming in uh, now that we are more well-known and our social media is being shared. So the awareness of our work is uh, exponentially increasing. And so therefore that is increasing the demand on our time. Um, and so uh, there is that aspect of it. Unfortunately, it's not increasing the support that we are receiving uh, in fact, I would say that our support has greatly diminished over the past uh, six to ten months. And, of course, that also limits what I'm able to do uh, because, uh, you know, these ministries, uh, a ministry like this one, is not inexpensive. And uh, there is just uh, only so much that a minister can do by paying out of pocket. Um, so, you know, we really have to operate only on the basis of what we can afford, and if we don't receive your support, we can't do any more than what we're currently doing. So it is extremely important that if you believe in this ministry, if you enjoy this this uh, show, which is part of its teaching ministry on, on mysticism uh, and uh, better explanations for esoteric Christianity, um, then support our, uh, us. Yeah, no, there is really no donation that's too small, but what is really most important at this point is that we receive uh, a regular, uh, a tri uh, a, a, just a regular donation every month. Uh, so if you feel that you really want to help this ministry flourish, if you want us to, to be able to have more of these shows, um, then please go uh, go to our page on Facebook, the Holy Nicolaitan Catholic Church, uh, and click the donation button, and it will give you the option to give either a one-time donation or a monthly donation. Um, we do, of course, uh, like right now in particular, we need more monthly donations so that we can create a long-term budget, and then that would allow us to do so much more than what we're currently able to. So it's really very important. Do not assume that we are receiving support from other channels. We do not. Uh, even though we do have a, uh, a weekly, uh, sometimes bi-weekly liturgy, sometimes even more than that if there's a lot of feast days to celebrate, um, you know, we don't pass around a donation bucket at the Mass because we feel that that sort of disrupts the liturgy, the liturgy especially in such a small space as, as uh, the Chapel of the Holy Innocents. But, uh, uh, you know, there is a donation uh, bucket outside, uh, which is largely ignored by uh, the people who attend our liturgy. Uh, so it's it's very important. It's 
very, very important that we receive your support, especially here. Uh, if you're listening to the show, you probably found out about it through social media. And uh, in order for us to be able to help the people who come to us who are usually in uh, not only spiritual crisis, but also within uh, a, a personal uh, crisis, with, whether it be medical, whether it be psychological or an emotional, it, in, it inhibits their ability to work. And in some cases, uh, you know, our clients are in worse shape than even the, uh, the, the, the budgetary constraints of the ministry itself. And so the people that we serve are not always, in, in fact, are usually not in a position to, um, to help. So we need to rely upon all of you who believe in this ministry, who realize that satanic and demonic attachment is a real problem and it requires an expertise to resolve. It's an expertise that the Holy Nicolaitan Catholic Church has and we are very, very successful at resolving these problems for the people who come to us. In fact, we have never had a case that we could not resolve. Some of them uh, do involve long-term care so we are sort of like a spiritual hospital. And, uh, you know, just like a medical hospital, we need support to survive if we are taking clients completely free of charge. Nobody gets turned away uh, by, by a, a, an inability to donate. We help people whether they can uh, help the ministry financially or not. But we are reaching a point where we are receiving more cases than we have the manpower and financial resources um, to uh, to support. And so we're having to pick and choose only the worst cases, and I don't like having to do that. I would much prefer to be able to help everybody who comes to us. So please find it within yourself to help us because I cannot guarantee that these ministries will continue uh, if we do not receive uh, your support so that we can assure a long-term solution to the financial uh, challenges that come with this work, okay? Remember, all of us work for free, including myself. I do not get paid a salary. I have never been able to draw a salary from this church. And, uh, you know, that causes a lot of stress for all of us. Uh, the volunteers, some of them are working close to a full-time uh, uh, situation. I know that I do. And so... That's part of the reason why I've been gone for so long. But let's get to your questions here. Um, I don't want to spend too much time on that, but it is important that I mention it every now and then because I need to appeal to all of you uh, for this support. We just can't depend upon our clients. Some of them are just not able to help. Okay? And those are really the only people we see. We don't have a big church. I don't have a large congregation. My congregation are our clients, the people we serve. That's how this ministry works. So please understand that, and please find some generosity within yourself to uh, support this ministry. Okay, so let's get to our questions today. Uh, we've got two interesting ones. One's kind of, uh, uh, you know, very deep and, and theological, and the other one's really more pragmatic and practical. So um, they're both important questions, uh, and, uh, you know, I think... They, they came, came directly from the audience who listens to the show regularly. Um, and so I thought it'd be a good idea to, you know, do a show every now and then that answers these questions since, you know, they're, they're important. You know, people have questions about their, their uh, theology, their religion that are not always uh, effectively answered by the supposed experts in the field, you know. And so I try to do my best to give you a well-rounded answer 
that touches on the conventional as well as the esoteric because both are important to this ministry, both are important to this church. We are, after all, an esoteric church and that can sometimes uh, invoke a lot of confusion for people. And so I try to do my best to answer these questions, uh, your questions, as clearly as I possibly can. So let's uh, start with the first one here. Um, the question came in uh, over uh, an audience member who was reflecting on uh, the book of Revelation, chapter 20, and specifically the first, uh, well, uh, verse 2 and 3. Uh, but I'm going to read to you uh, verses 1 through 19. And uh, uh, that will give you a good uh, prerequisite to the question, which is, will the devil ever be completely destroyed? Okay, now we've done a lot of series recently on the devil, and that's because this ministry works almost exclusively with fighting the forces of darkness. That's what exorcism ministry is all about. Um, and uh, that is what demonic investigation and paranormal investigation uh, involves or is involved with that type of field. And so, therefore, it is important that we, um, you know, answer questions about the devil. And it's this good one. This is a really good one. Will the devil ever be completely destroyed? Well, let's first look at Revelation chapter uh, 20, because that's really the only place that we can find uh, a definitive theological answer to this question, which will give us the satisfaction of uh, supplying the conventional answer. So let's read verses 1 through 10 of Revelation chapter 20. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number they are like the sand in the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beasts and the false prophet had been thrown, they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. All right. Now, a little further into this chapter, we see that the lake of fire is also an a, a analogy or a symbolic analogy to what is being referred to here as the second death. 
Now, this is important because we've already talked about a lot of what uh, uh, death involves. In fact, in in, in uh, chapter uh, Revelation chapter 20, verse 14, we see it say, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Okay, So once again, we are seeing that within the spiritual construct of the afterlife, Hades, which is the Greek word for hell, the uh, Hebrew equivalent would be Sheol. Okay, We see here once again that hell is not a permanent condition. It is a destructive principle in its fullest extent. Now, we've talked about this at great length before. Now, I don't want to get into that. Um, If you haven't listened to those episodes on um, Afterlife and those episodes on uh, who Satan really is and even watch my lecture that we put up on the church news site, you can go to YouTube and watch it. It's a long one. I warn you ahead of time. Uh, It's about three and a half hours, I think. Uh, but it will give you a lot of really good, high-quality esoteric information, as well as conventional theology, so that you can um, reconcile the seeming contradictions between the two. And y- if you recall, for those of you who have watched it, and those of you who have listened to past episodes on this subject, you know that esoterically speaking, within the context of uh, Christian esotericism, hell is not a permanent condition, uh, of suffering, hell is a permanent condition of annihilation. It's permanent in the sense that you are completely, if you end up there, which is not a place but a condition, but we can only use the uh, the terminology that uh, limits us within the context of the English language. So we do our best to qualify every statement so that we don't get lost in the semantics of these uh, complicated uh, concepts. Um, but what the permanence of hell is the fact that there is no there is no reversal of annihilation once you are completely destroyed you are wiped out from existence for all eternity as if you never were in fact it's exactly as if you never were because those who end up in hell at the end of time when you enter into the timelessness of the of of eternity with god um everything that comes before it no longer really has any meaning because all moments are now, including those moments that occurred before. It's kind of a paradoxical uh, situation that's a little bit difficult for the human brain to wrap itself around, and that's part of the ineffability of the afterlife and why Jesus used parables to speak about the kingdom of heaven. Um, But the same is true for Hades Sheol, or our English word hell. We're not talking about a place of, of permanent suffering. We're talking about a place of annihilation. But then you've got to say, but Bishop, verse 10 says, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So it sounds as though it's, it's eternal. Um, again, and it sounds as though the punishment, rather, is eternal, because we're talking about being tormented day and night forever and ever. And this 
invokes our medieval concepts of the hell that uh, is more traditional to people's thinking today. For Christians today, that hell is this place of eternal suffering. This is one of the verses that gives us this notion. But we have to understand what is really being said here. And the book of Revelation is one massive parable. It's not a literal book. It is not meant to be taken literally. It is entirely a representation of, uh, of the ineffability of the afterlife in this context here. Of course, it has a whole lot more going on than just that. But we're talking about the end of time. We're talking about the completion of the human story. And the Bible is the human story from beginning to end. Okay, um, And so... Even though the word here that is used is tormented, and in, 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 in Greek it's the same, it means to be tormented. Um, so when it, we can't say that, well, the English translation confuses it. No, it really doesn't. It, it, it does say this. But what is really being meant here is that any separation from the grace of God by virtue of that condition is absolute torment even if you can't feel it anymore, even if you've been wiped out of existence, the very fact that you can no longer live in the grace of God for all eternity, as is promised those written into the book of life, it is by virtue of that very, that very same condition, torment. It's just not a conscious torment. And Hades was never a place of consciousness, nor was Sheol a place of consciousness. It was a place of eternal slumber, half-consciousness at best, or rudimentary instinctual awareness is what I would like to call it, but it eventually gets wiped away. And what do we mean by second death? Well, that's actually quite literal, because we go through our first death, which is our physical dying. That is the, the death of the human body the physical body, where the brain goes as well, which means that our consciousness goes with the brain. Our consciousness is a product of our physicality. It is not a spiritual condition. Our awareness is spiritual, but our consciousness is not. The ability to reason, the, the faculties of intellection are all aspects of the human brain, which dies with the human body at the point of death. And so, when we get to... Um, the second death, what we're talking about here, is the death of the spirit. We are both corporeal and non-corporeal. We have talked about this numerous times before. We have a corporeal side, we have a non-corporeal side, which means we have a physical side, which is our human bodies, and we have a spiritual side, which is our spirit. Not our soul. Soul is a completely different thing that has no bearing on our individuality whatsoever. So throw the soul concept out completely right now, because it's only going to confuse the issue. A human being in its completion is made up of just two conditions, a physical body and a spiritual, non-corporeal, non-physical spirit. And that spirit dies the second death. That's the being cast into the lake of fire. That's those who are not found written in the book of life. So who's found written in the book of life? Well, that will be uh, those who engage salvation through the grace of God's church, through the development of an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, and those that achieve to uh, immortality through 
uh, the uh, grace of the cross. That's it's just you know that's what the whole Christian religion's about is about attaining to that, so that we don't die the second death, and so therefore our spirit can be preserved. And then the body resurrects too, right? It all comes full circle. So it's like the body dies, then the spirit begins to die soon after the body dies. And if one has attained to a state of permanence through the eternal life promise of Jesus Christ, then their spirit can be preserved. And then at the end of time, the resurrection of the dead occurs and their body is restored. And then they will truly exist again in a physical form once again. But it's probably, well, it is a new universe for all intents and purposes at that point because the old heaven and the old earth will be cast out, will pass away, and it will be restored as a new heaven and a new earth. And, and human beings that are resurrected will be restored to that new earth. So the true afterlife is not entirely a spiritual condition anymore. It will be very physical, far more real than this one. So what happens to Satan? Because we see here that Satan gets thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, the lake of fire. He seems as though he, in fact, dies the second death. But yet the scriptures say he will be tormented day and night forever and ever, which is the same as the beast, the false prophet, and everyone who gets thrown into Hades. So the question that was asked is, will the devil ever be completely destroyed? That's the challenging thing because they are the answer to that is both yes and no. It depends upon what you mean by Satan and the devil, because they are not they are not exclusively one thing. The devil makes up, is made up of several conditions, several spiritual realities, and some of which are eternal and some of which are not. And so in order to understand this, we need to get a little bit more metaphysical and talk about the principles of creation and reabsorption, which is another thing we've talked about before. So in order to fully understand what I'm about to say, it's important that you go back and uh, listen to those previous shows. The reality is that the devil, as we know him, as we experience him through the scriptures, as we experience him through the um, the theology of the church is an expression of a higher eternal principle that we have grown to resist and even hate, which is destruction. We are it, we are innately resistant to the idea of impermanence, and yet everything that we do is destructive. By the virtue of living on this, in this reality, we are destroying it. From the moment you are born, you begin to die. We live in a universe of entropy. And that entropy is governed by the principle of a reabsorption, which is what makes creation possible. And that highest principle of reabsorption is ultimately the most rudimentary source of what the devil is. But the thing is, is that when that power that ultimate power, which is in every way uh, a, a cosmic reality that is eternal, when we are faced with it, it grows 
through our misunderstandings, through our ignorances, and becomes a personified projection of what eventually becomes the devil. Now, I'm not going to go in and do what, what took three or four episodes before and repeat all this. So you need to go back and, and, and listen to those shows and even watch the, uh, the video on demystifying the devil, the lecture I gave um, a few weeks ago in Augusta, Georgia, uh, to really fully grasp this. But that personified projection of the destructive principle of the cosmos will be truly destroyed and annihilated. So in that sense, the theological devil is absolutely destroyed. But the cosmic reality that is what, where the projection of the devil comes from is an eternal principle. And that will, live, that will exist forever. But it's not a... It's not a it's a power of the divine. It is not a a being. It is not a consciousness. It is, it's it is fundamentally aware, but only in a cosmic sense, not in a sense of there being a creature involved. The devil, in a sense, is a creature at the theological level, and that creature, which is a bastardization of the cosmic destructive or uh, reabsorption principle that creature is cast into the lake of fire and eventually achieves to a second death so the answer is yes and no depending upon how deep into the, the devil you want to go I have often said in mystical discussion that human beings are merely reflections of reflections that is what's meant by we are made in the image of God uh, because we are basically a reflection of a reflection of God. So God reflects out, that reflection reflects again, and it produces human beings. The same is true of the devil. There is a pure reality that reflects out, that reflects again, and we are given uh, the theological Satan which is a creature, a product of the creation that will eventually be wiped out uh, when the role of entropy is no longer a part of, the re- of our reality as human beings. Entropy will always exist, but we will have shifted to the side of the universe that is ectropic, which is the opposite of entropy, where things are eternal. And that's the eternal life that Jesus talks about. I know that's probably a complicated answer, but it was a complicated question, far more complicated than I think uh, we could have. Um, well, it's as simplified as I can give you. Let's just leave it at that. All right, let's get to the second question here. We've got about 13 and a half minutes to answer it. This one will be a little bit easier. Um, should a Christian teenagers have boyfriends uh, and, and or girlfriends? Okay. This is a question that came from an audience member um, on the last episode, and uh, you know I wanted to get to it because it's a good question, even though it's not as esoteric as some of the things that we've talked about on this show. Um, it is an important thing 
uh, for uh, you know young people to be aware of because there are a lot of pastors out there within the more conventional canonical churches that are teaching in some of the more conservative uh, systems that um, it is actually sinful for um, uh, teenagers to be involved uh, with uh, a love relationship um, because it can lead to sin, right? Because uh, we we would our society would 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 never consider uh the uh, uh the marriage of a teenager uh, at least a minor uh to be uh an acceptable uh, appropriate practice for our society um and so therefore since they cannot get married um they uh you know being involved uh with a love interest uh without the benefit of marriage uh, concern is that it's always going to lead to sin, that you're eventually going to get into some type of, of sexual encounter, uh, and that is going to lead you into sin. And so therefore, the only thing that you can do is to resist uh, the temptation to engage into a, a boyfriend or girlfriend relationship, whatever the case may be, and uh, until you are an adult and old enough to enter into uh, a marital union. Now, it, it's further compounded and I've seen this so much I went to a uh I went uh, I went to Palm Beach Atlantic University uh for uh uh both uh undergrad and graduate school and I can I can tell you and that's a private Christian uh college uh and they are even though they consider themselves to be non-denominational uh I can honestly tell you they are uh thoroughly uh, a mix between First Baptist and uh, Evangelical uh, Christianity. And, uh, you know, they required everyone to go to uh, chapel every week. And, you know, it's regard- whether, regardless of whether or not you were Catholic or something else, um, you know, you had to do things their way, which was very reprehensible to me. But it's just the way that it is. You know, that's that's just the way these... Christian colleges operate, Christian Christian institutions operate. And while I was there, I noticed that uh, freshmen in particular uh, would uh, be away from home for the first time in their lives, coming from these very strict Christian uh, uh, families and uh, being free to now engage as adults in uh, a uh, relationship with a member of the opposite sex. And, you know, I was shocked to see that within the first semester, all these freshmen were getting married. Uh, like they, they just, they were rushing right into marriage because they were, you know, finally free to be able to engage their biology. Um, and, you know, it's, it's completely uh, uh, futile to try to ignore or, 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 or sweep under the carpet the realities of our sexual uh, being that uh, is part of our biology and it's part of what it means to be human, that we have a sexual drive and it's going to interfere with our decisions and it's going to affect us on a emotional and uh, behavioral level because it is, you're dealing with very powerful hormonal uh, systems here, um, that you know, they would just rush into, uh, into marriage. So that they could have what they saw as lawful sexual interactions with a member of the opposite sex. And that is a horrible thing. I I wonder if any of those marriages actually lasted. Because, you know, I mean, you don't just run into marriage with the first person you see. 
Um, and you know, honestly, if I, I feel like if you don't, if you don't start out as, 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 as best friends first, before you even start to get the feelings, uh, for romance, um, then I think your marriage is already, uh, 50% on the rocks from the beginning of the relationship. But where does that go with Lee answering this question? Well, you know, as, as a bishop, you know, again, as a as a Catholic bishop, you know, Catholics are a little bit more relaxed about these things, although I don't think we always were, but, you know, we are now. Um, I think it's very important that Christian teenagers, you know, engage in healthy relationships with the members of the opposite sex, um, as long as they have an understanding of what it is that they are getting themselves into, um, and that mistakes are going to happen. Absolutely. If you cannot control your emotions, if you cannot control your physiology, which is going to be telling you to do one thing, which is to, you know, lose yourself in the moment and engage in, in, in sexual relations with that member of the opposite sex, then, um, you know, then, then you are going to have problems because, you know, then there's, there's uh, all the risks of, of pregnancy. There's the risks of, of, of the, the relationship falling apart because it wasn't matured to begin with. It, it was established on shaky ground. And if your reason for getting into a relationship is strictly sexual, whether you're engaging in that sexuality or not, whether you are partaking of it or not, and that I'm talking about intercourse as much as I'm talking about uh, heavy petting or you know any other type of things that human beings can do on a sexual level with each other. Uh, it is extremely important that we have complete control over ourselves so that we can make good decisions and always be pragmatic about everything that we do. It's about maturity. So should Christian teenagers have boyfriends and girlfriends? Of course they should, as long as they can engage in the relationship at a mature level. If they are innately immature, then it might be best that they don't. But if they are mature, responsible people and they've proven themselves to be such, then I, I think it's actually not only something that is, is okay for them to do, but I think it's something that they should do as long as it fosters that maturity and allows them to develop into more complete human beings as they approach adulthood. I don't believe in keeping teenagers infants forever. You know, let's, today we're celebrating the, the nativity this is the feast day in the Catholic Church of the Nativity of the Virgin Mary. It is believed by most biblical scholars that the Virgin Mary was at, at, at best 14 years old. At worst, she might have even been as young as 12. Joseph was probably 25 years her senior, maybe more. Okay, This is a relationship that we would look at with complete disgust today. And yet, this is the Holy Family we are talking about. Okay. We have, you know, but then again, teenagers in those days were more mature. They had to be. And our biology demands it because we don't go through puberty at 18. I know I think a lot of parents wish that they, their kids did, but that's not realistic and nor is it healthy. We go through puberty at 12, 13, 13 years old um, because sometimes it's even sooner these days, but because biologically, 
our bodies are being made ready for becoming adults. So biologically, by the time we're 15 years old, we're already an adult biologically. But our society has kept our children immature. And then when they feel these adult emotional responses to human sexuality, they don't know what to do. And so now we have all these crises of teenage pregnancy and abortion and birth control issues and what else. Exercise your reality responsibly. Whether you are an adult, whether you are a teenager, responsibility is everything. With responsibility comes great privilege, but it also with more responsibility. And so therefore the answer to that question is relative to the person. If you've got a very immature teen who has proven themselves time and time again to not be responsible, then they probably shouldn't they're probably not ready for a boyfriend or a girlfriend. But if they have proven themselves to be a mature individual, in in other words they, they, they work very hard at school or even with maybe a part time job uh, they participate in the family unit. They're not always lashing out. They have control over their emotions, even though that's a very rocky time for, you know, adolescence is a horrible time emotionally. But if you can still control yourself within the midst of those changing fluctuations in emotional temperament, by all means, engaging into a, getting into a, a relationship with a boyfriend or a girlfriend is a, very, is a very healthy thing for you to be doing as long as you can maintain your control. What, do you do? What, what happens if mistakes happen? Well, mistakes are going to happen. We're sinful by our very nature. And if you think that only teenagers sin, then you're fooling yourself. Because adults have problems well into their 40s and 50s controlling their sexualities. And we're going to have teenagers being expected to do the same thing? Well, guess what? The, the spiritual life is all about maturity whether it be talking about our relationship to God, whether it be talking about our relationship to others, our family members, uh, our love interests, or even ourselves. It's all about maturity. It's all about responsibility. And that can never be understated. In fact, it can never be overstated enough. And that's just the way it is. So... I see nothing wrong with it as long as the teenager in question has proven themselves to be capable of handling it. And even then, mistakes can happen. And that's why this church honestly does not prohibit uh, birth control. The Roman Catholic Church does. The Roman Catholic canons are against it. But uh, the Holy Nicolaian Catholic Church has a more enlightened view and we do not prohibit the use of birth control, uh, which I think is just, again, being responsible. Believe me, if God wants you to get pregnant, there is no birth control that's going to prevent him from being able to exercise his right as God. So we're not interfering with God's process. Abortion, though, is a completely different thing. And I would much rather see millions of people on birth control than millions of people having to contemplate abortion because they had a child when they were being irresponsible, and now they don't know what to do. For Vestiges of Christianity, this is Bishop Brian Willette thanking you, and until next time, hopefully I'll see you a little bit sooner, but things are going to be a little sporadic over the next several months. 
Remember, we need your financial support to keep this show going and, of course, to keep our ministries operational. Once again, thank you and have a wonderful, wonderful day. God bless. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.